Welcome to Process This, a podcast for the sterile processing community. The Healthcare Sterile Processing Association, HSPA, invites you to log on, listen and learn twice a month. Now it's time to process this with your host, clinical educator, John Wood. Welcome to the Process This podcast. This is episode number 72. Thanks for joining me. I hope that you are doing well. Today on the show, we have the segment, What's on My Mind? Now, it's been a while since we've had this segment, so I can't wait. I love this segment. Uh, But along with that, we are also looking at some recently published articles in the AGIC Journal. These articles have something interesting and new for us, so stick around for that. But first, we have a quick announcement from HSPA. In tune with sterile processing. In Tune with Sterile Processing is the theme for the next HSPA conference and expo. The 2023 HSPA conference is in Nashville. The conference will be held at the Gaylord Opera Land Resort and Convention Center. I love the Gaylord Hotels because you're inside, but it feels like you're outside, but you're inside. But again, you have that outside-inside feeling. Outside-inside, right? So it's pretty awesome. Early bird registration is now open. Lock in the lowest, absolute lowest of the low pricing for the conference. Now is the time to take advantage of our biggest registration discount and secure your spot for the can't-miss sterile processing event of the year. May 6th through the 10th, 2023, in Nashville, Tennessee. What's on my mind? So this segment is what's on my mind where I'm going to talk about something that I want to talk about. This is my rant. Uh, We haven't done this for a while. Uh, One of my favorites, though. So I recently had some questions come my way about peel packages. Believe it or not, I get quite a few questions on peel packages. uh, And they range from, can you double peel pack? Is there a weight limit for the peel pouch? Uh, What is the best place to label peel pouch packages? Now, these are all good questions. And honestly, I'm glad folks are asking these questions because 
Asking questions means you're thinking about processes and you're thinking, how are you currently doing things in your facility? And all of this leads to better sterile processing practices. So the first thing I do when I get a question is I look to the standards to see if they have any information for me. I'll look to the recommendations, any guidelines, even the instructions for use. Well, the double peel packing, the weight limits, and the labeling questions are not really addressed in the recommendations. You're not going to find a lot of information in the standards that's going to be helpful. So for this type of question, I'm going to look mainly at the IFUs. So if you ask me a question about double peel packing, I'm going to tell you to go read your IFUs. Now, sometimes if I'm feeling nice, if I've had my Jamba Juice for the day, I'll even attach the IFU or a sample IFU to kind of show you what I'm talking about. So I found a random IFU for a peel patch that I'm going to look at to kind of help us with some of these questions. Now, first interesting thing that I see in the IFUs is it talks about storage. You know, it's kind of one of the first things on there. And there are two statements that I want you to hear. Doesn't have anything to do with the questions, but I think they're important. First, once the pouches and the rolls are removed from the packaging, they are to be stored at a temperature of 18 to 24 C Celsius. Now, for normal folks like me, who don't regularly use Celsius, that is 64 to 75 degrees with a humidity of 30 to 60%. Okay, not really a problem, right? You know, most of our sterile processing departments can accommodate those levels. You know, most of you, I hope, are already doing that. So not really a problem there. It's kind of this next statement. Pouches should be stored in closed cabinets protected from a UV light source. The process indicator is sensitive to UV light and may change color over time if not stored properly. So the question begs, are you storing the peel pouches and rolls in a closed protected cabinet when they're not in use? Or are they sitting out at your workstation or your dedicated peel pouch station, all being exposed to UV light. How long have they been sitting there? What is your practice, and do you think that you need to change your practice based on your IFUs? Go look at your IFUs, see what they say. All right, so on to our question. Can you use double pouching? So for this particular manufacturer that I found, in the IFU, it reads, Validation tested for double pouching. So yes, I can double pouch if I feel like it. Now, does that mean that you can double pouch devices? I don't know. I don't know what products you're using. I don't know what your peel pouch product is, your vendor, your manufacturer. So go look it up. If it's not in the IFU, then I guess, nope, you cannot double peel pouch. So look up that information if you have that question. Next question, is there a weight limit for peel pouches? Well, I have no idea. 
If you have no idea, then maybe we should look at some information, right? So let's look at our peel package IFUs. I'm looking and guess what? Zero information about peel package weights. Well, I guess that just means I can do whatever I want, right? Well, not exactly. Uh, most of you out there are going to give up at this point, right? Because it's not easy to find. But I, I urge you, don't give up. Look at all the resources that you have available. Look for it, uh, whatever information that you can find that can help you. Uh, in this instance, we know that peel pouches are going to be used in the sterilizer. So let's see if the sterilizer IFUs has any useful information we can use. So I found a sterilizer IFU, uh, and I've used this in a presentation in the past. But this IFU specifically states that the max weight for a peel pack in this sterilizer is 3.3 pounds. Score one for me, because I didn't give up. I went on and looked for information to see if I could find something. So this means that I can't put a 5 pound mallet in a peel pack. The point here is that sometimes the answer is just not always given to you in the one place, the easy place to look for. Sometimes you have to use your resources, so don't give up. Last question, where is the best place to label peel pouches? All right, so first thing I'm going to do is look at the IFU. And guess what? Nothing. No information for labeling. And not not too surprised, uh, but I already know that there's no standards, no recommendations, really that I'm aware of, that address labeling on the peel pouch, the, the the best place for it. So, what other resources do I have? What other resources can I use to help me? And one that I have at my fingertips right here is the CRCST technical manual. So let's see what they have to say. So paper plastic pouches must only be labeled on the plastic side or on areas specifically provided by the manufacturer. Writing on the paper side of the pouch will cause damage to the package, which may uh, not be noticeable, but which may compromise the barrier protection. It goes on to say, use only pens approved for writing on the plastic surface and approved for sterilization methods being used. Using the wrong type of pen, such as a ballpoint pen, can damage the package. Okay, so what does that tell us? What did we read? So the plastic side, not paper. Okay, that makes sense, right? We all kind of know that, or we should. Uh, plastic side is impervious. I mean, it, it, nothing's getting through the plastic side, unless you put a hole in it, I guess. Uh, paper side is where the steam penetrates. Okay, so we're writing on the plastic side. Got it. But not exactly a placement, right? They didn't really tell us exactly where we should place uh, the labeling of that package. Well, I don't have any other resources. So where do we write on this peel pack? Okay, so my recommendation after looking at the information that I could find, and I'm going to have to use some of my own reasoning. I would label the peel pouch on the plastic side in an area that does not obstruct the view 
of the contents inside the package, which includes the device and any indicators. All right, so once I determine that, once I determine where I'm going to label the package, my next step is to pass this information on to the sterile processing team. Why? Because everybody needs to be consistent. Everybody needs to do the same thing. So we need to label in the same place so we're all consistent across the board. All right, so there's lots of other information about peel packs in the IFUs. Right, going to tell you how to double peel pack if that's an option. Going to tell you the parameters, sterilization methods, the, the materials that consist of the peel pack. Lots of information in that IFU. So read your IFUs. They're extremely important. Uh, don't forget them. Well, there you go. That's all I've got for you today on peel packs. And that's what's on my mind. How many of you out there remember COVID? Well, that's probably the most silliest thing I've ever said, because I think we can all agree that we are pretty much over COVID and all things that that implies. But I urge you to bear with me for this one, because this is some really good information. So COVID brought about some things that... I, and probably you, have never really experienced. Uh, one thing that comes to mind is the toilet paper shortage. Now, the toilet paper shortage reminds me of one of my favorite Seinfeld episodes in which Elaine utters the phrase, Can you spare a square? As she reaches under the stall next to her to try to get a square. There were times during COVID when there was simply no squares to spare. Those were dark, dark, dark times. COVID also forced me to be a teacher, cafeteria lunch man, among other various unexpected roles. I will never understand new math. I don't get it. I don't want to. On a more relatable note, COVID brought about the first in my lifetime at least that I'm aware of, the first emergency use authorization in the FDA. I know that there are many of you out there that had the experience of decontaminating and essentially reprocessing single-use masks. I know that many of you did what you could, the best you could, as the information was changing daily, and you did all that to provide masks for your healthcare facilities, so well done. But along those lines of mass decontamination, today I want to talk to you about some interesting articles that were recently published in the August 2022 volume 50, number 8 issue of the AGIC, which is the American Journal of Infection Control, because there were five articles published about the use of methylene blue and light to decontaminate surgical and N95 masks. 
Now, if you don't know what methylene blue is, it is a, a salt substance used as a dye, and it's also used as medication. In the operating room, I've used it as a, a stain or a type of marker. It can also be injected into lymph nodes and veins to really help you, the surgeon, see better. Now, here are the titles that we're going to look at. I'm not going to read them all. It's way too much information. But the articles, uh, let's start with Methylene Blue in combination with sunlight as a low-cost and effective disinfectant method for coronavirus contaminated PPE. Of Mask and Methylene Blue the use of methylene blue photochemical treatment to decontaminate surgical mask contaminated with a tenacious, small, non-enveloped neurovirus. Exploring inactivation of SARS-CoV-2, MERS-CoV, Ebola, Lassa, and Nipah viruses on N95 and KN95 respirator material using photo-activated methylene blue to enable reuse. The fourth is methylene blue applied to N95 respirators and medical mask for SARS-CoV-2, again COVID, decontamination, what is the likelihood of inhaling methylene blue, and then the last article, inactivation strategies for SARS-CoV-2 on surgical masks using light-activated chemical dyes. So one of the introductions in the article is COVID-19 has not only highlighted the unpreparedness of the world to handle a global pandemic, but has also unmasked the inequity of resources available. A major issue from the beginning of the pandemic has been the availability of personal protective equipment, including surgical masks and respirators, which still remains problematic in the same areas of the world where vaccinations are not readily available to the general public. Consequently, efforts have been made to sanitize and reuse PPE. Published sanitation techniques are on the hours timescale and often require equipment that is not readily available to low resource settings. Therefore, there is a need for cost-effective and time-efficient methods for safe decontamination of PPE. A recent global collaboration in which our group participated in a study on development and methods for N95 respirators and mass decontamination and validated methylene blue in combination with visible indoor light to efficiently disinfect PPE contaminated with infectious SARS-CoV-2 or surrogate animal viruses. Now, they undertook a follow-up study and demonstrated the efficacy of methylene blue in combination with sunlight to decontaminate surgical masks, solidifying the position of methylene blue as a robust decontamination method for all settings. The coronavirus disease, COVID-19 pandemic, has placed a major burden on the healthcare systems around the world. One major challenge that exacerbated the health crisis was scarcity of protective personal equipment, including N95 respirators. 
healthcare workers sometimes resorted to reusing these single-use items due to supply shortages, which prompted the World Health Organization to provide recommendations for rational use of PPE in healthcare settings and temporary strategies during acute supply shortages. The World Health Organization guidelines include the recommendations to decontaminate respirators before reuse. Various decontamination methods are listed for consideration, including ultraviolet irradiation, moist or dry heat sterilization, and vaporized hydrogen peroxide treatment. Decontamination methods must be effective without adversely affecting N95 respirator integrity and fit, thus excluding decontamination methods using alcohol or intense heat. Vaporized hydrogen peroxide treatment received the U.S. Food and Drug Administration's emergency use approval for decontaminating N95 respirators, but like many of the aforementioned methods, it requires specialized equipment that is not available in many healthcare settings, especially in low-resource settings. Recently, photoactivated methylene blue was reported to decontaminate N95 respirators contaminated with various coronaviruses, including SARS-CoV-2. Importantly, N95 integrity and fit were unaffected after five sequential applications of photoactivated methylene blue decontamination, thus potentially enabling safe reuse of these respirators. Now, methylene blue is a light-activated dye with demonstrated antimicrobial activity. Photoactivated methylene blue generates singlet oxygen, which damages viral nucleic acids and or viral envelopes. Methylene blue is already approved by the FDA and used to sterilize donor plasma before transfusions. Its efficacy has been demonstrated against a wide range of viruses in donor plasma. Photoactivated methylene blue represents a promising novel decontamination method since it does not require specialized equipment, it is inexpensive and commercially available, can be applied by spraying or immersing, and is effectively activated by exposure to bright or ambient light. Because ambient light can activate methylene blue, electricity is not an absolute requirement for this decontamination technique, making it suitable for field settings. One of the main advantages of using photoactivated methylene blue for virus inactivation is that methylene blue activity is nonspecific and therefore the development of viral resistance is not expected. When combining methylene blue with a light source, the energy is absorbed and transferred to molecular oxygen, resulting in the highly reactive singlet oxygen. Singlet oxygen reacts with the cellular environment, leading to nonspecific oxidative reactions. This results in damage to nucleic acids, proteins, and lipids. Despite its nonspecificity, not all viruses are equally sensitive to photoactivated methylene blue. This may be due to the type and size of the viral genome, type of viral envelope, and or viron complexity. 
Though not tested in this study, non-envelope viruses appear less sensitive to methylene blue. Methylene blue respirator decontamination or pretreatment could potentially be applied in hospital settings where it would encounter a wider range of pathogens. Methylene blue was demonstrated to be effective against pathogens causing common hospital infections such as influenza, norovirus, Staph aureus, and E. coli. To inactivate hardier pathogens such as norovirus, higher methylene blue concentrations or longer exposure times may be required. Methylene blue applied to respirator material retains potency after prolonged exposure to ambient light, demonstrating that such pretreatment may represent a promising strategy for adding an extra layer of protection to this type of PPE. Additional studies are warranted to examine the durability of pretreatment beyond the times tested, as well as the effect of more intense light source and natural sunlight. Since the outer surface of the respirator is hydrophobic, methylene blue could be incorporated in the production process as an antimicrobial coating. This antimicrobial coating would begin to inactivate pathogens that come in contact with the mask surface in real time, therefore reducing the risk of exposure during doffing of PPE. So there's just a little bit of information about methylene blue. And then last here, I'm going to read the conclusions uh, that are presented for each of the five studies. The research demonstrates that methylene blue effectively decontaminates SARS-CoV-2 on surgical masks. Another one, inactivation of neurovirus, the most difficult to inactivate of the respiratory and gastrointestinal human viruses, can predict the inactivation of any less resistant viral mass contaminants. The protocol developed here thus solidifies the position of methylene blue photochemical decontamination as an important tool in the package of practical pandemic preparedness. This brief report validates the use of methylene blue in combination of sunlight as a robust decontamination method for PPE such as surgical masks that can be deployed in any setting, especially in remote areas where electricity is not readily available. These results demonstrated that photoactive methylene blue represents a cost-effective, rapid, and wide deployable method to decontaminate N95 respirators for reuse during supply shortages and last at a 500-fold the amount of methylene blue applied to N95 respirators and medical masks as were used for the decontamination study cited in the World Health Organization Rational Use of PPE Bulletin. No detectable methylene blue was observed, thus providing safety evidence for the use of methylene blue and light exposure for mass decontamination. So some really interesting studies here kind of a new way of thinking, a new method to decontaminate masks, right? An alternative to using the hydrogen peroxide as we have previously used 
right? So again, interesting study, especially if we go into something like this again, if we have another wave that, you know, brings uh, shortages of masks, we now have another alternative that might be a viable solution for you in those situations. HSPA episode number 72 is in the books. Thanks for listening to the show. To receive the CE for this episode, simply click on the link in the episode notes, log on to the MyHSPA website, and make sure you use the code METHYLENEBLUE. Again, the code for this episode is METHYLENEBLUE. Remember, keep an ear out for the next episode always on the 1st and 15th of every month. Each episode's on demand, so when you're ready for us, we'll be there for you. As always, stay classy, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>